Welcome back. My name is Leilani. And I'm Sam. I am taking part of the reins with Leilani here. And we are back for another episode of There's Danger Here. Today, we're going to bring a case um, to Seattle. I figured we'd start with a case in Seattle because, Sam, you lived there for many years. And I thought maybe you'd have some insight or just want to hear a story about that area. Definitely heard about a lot of serial killers from there, but this one does not ring a bell. So I'm pretty excited. Right. So on March 25th, 2006, Seattle's Capitol Hill Art Center held a rave called Better Off Undead. As the rave wound down, a group of partiers traveled to 2112 East Republican Street to continue an after party. Shortly after 7 a.m., shots rang out at the address, prompting police response. The shooter was viewed on the front porch, where he turned his weapon on himself, resulting in the total death toll of seven that day, and two others were injured. A loose adaptation of um, a movie called The Wallflower was based on this story. So, how did it all unfold? Well, Kyle Aaron Huff was born September 22, 1977, in Whitefish, Montana, along with a twin brother, Kane. Their mother divorced when they were little, raising them as single mom. She ran an art store within the Whitefish community. Kyle and his brother were not necessarily outcasts during their school years, but they definitely didn't fit into any particular group, keeping mostly to themselves. They didn't participate in any activities or sports, and neither did his brother. Well, that's where he went wrong. Right? No sports. <laughs> You've got to do sports. I know. So they didn't fit into, it doesn't look like any social activities, nothing together. And neither of them, their senior year, uh, submitted a yearbook photo. Oh, no. I feel like that's suspicious. Everybody that submits suspicious. one. You have to have a yearbook photo. And especially, like, at least one of the twins should have put a photo in. I know. Then you would at least remember who they were. Yeah. And throughout this case, I mean, heavily, we're only going to be talking about Kyle, but it's just strange that him and his brother are so alike, but only one is participating in this. Do you know if they both live in the Seattle area? They did. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think his brother actually moved up first, and then he came up after Kyle. Um, So when this happened, many of Whitefish residents described Kyle as a nice, quiet boy who didn't keep himself entirely out of trouble. So at one point, um, he was arrested during his high school years for felony destruction when he shot a public art exhibit of a moose called Moose on the Loose. Okay, so that's a sign. Yes. (laughs) Why does a high school kid, like, have a gun that he can just start shooting artwork with? That seems a little bit concerning to me. Uh, Well, I think this community is kind of uh, heavier on, like, the hunting. And so that's, I mean... Even here in Oregon, we can start what I think 13, you can take your license and go with parents. So I get it. And I, I grew up in like that small town, let's go hunting community. But the idea of a teenage boy just cruising around with his gun shooting at things is a little concerning to me. Fair, fair. And this uh, moose itself was named Daphne. It was a fiberglass figure that uh, there's many of them spread throughout the towns in the Midwest. I think there's one like 45 minutes from where I grew up. They're all over the place. Poor Daphne. Yeah. And this one was gifted to the community, so nobody even bought it, but the artist decided that the oh. community should have it. Yeah. Um, and he didn't just shoot the moose um, just once to cause damage, but rather he shot it 22 times, leading to the entire destruction of oh, this. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Um, at this point, they did take all of his weapons, the 
seized by police. However, after he pled guilty uh, to a lesser charge of criminal mischief, which was classified as a misdemeanor, and he paid fines and restitution for the damage, along with an apology letter, he did get his weapons back. Okay. That seems, you know, right on par with the community that I would envision he's growing up in. Right. Like, little slap on the wrist. We don't shoot guns at people's artwork. So here your guns back. Don't do it again. Yeah. Uh, in his apology letter to the artist, he did write, uh, it was not a personal attack and not intended to bring you or your family distress. He wrote back to the artists themselves. So maybe he did have some remorse. I know in high school, sometimes people get up to stupid things. Target practice. Yeah. I mean, put a moose right there in the community. Yeah. And I feel like it would be pretty hard not to want to shoot at it. That's what the community teenage brain. Yes. Yeah. I always thought like maybe vandalism with paint, but right. Yeah. After high school, his brother decided to move to Seattle and Kyle joined later. Uh, Kyle never seemed to find a place though while he was in Seattle. He didn't form any social attachments or friend groups. That's pretty on par with Seattle. Yeah. Well, it also seems like that's, I mean, it started in high school. He didn't really have a niche that he fit into. And then he moved to Seattle and whole new environment. So nothing there. It's the, it's the wrong city. It's the city of ice, man. Yes. Yes. I've heard that before. It's really, really hard. Yeah. He didn't form social attachments. Oh, I said that already. Sorry. Uh, In 2004, he was arrested for a bar fight at the Lobo Saloon. Um, But other than that, there's little other information about his daily life while he lived there. Kyle claims to have taken classes at two separate local colleges, though neither of them have any records of him attending. Kyle was unemployed for months prior to March. Previously, he had delivered pizzas. Um, His boss stated that he was kind and said, yes, sir. But one day he just walked out mid-shift and never returned. Okay. Uh, Maybe he delivered to the wrong people. (laughs) You're right. He's like, this job sucks. I'm out of here. It's too much. Too much. After the shooting, police searched the Huff brothers' apartment and found Kyle's computer. Viewing his computer, searches for serial killers, skinhead, and ecstasy were all found, as well as the Columbine massacre and a murder-suicide of a high school boy in Montana. So he definitely had some things that he was looking at right. to base this off of. Yeah. That's like, seems like you know, he's socially awkward, but at the same time, it's not like he's going to be a kid that's going to go shoot up a community of people. Like, yeah. he seems like see there was any aggressors. Or yeah. Aggressors. Yeah. 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 Like there's not a ton of indications that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And yet he's like sitting at home Googling all of these things. Mm-hmm. A little scary. Yeah. Um, so the murder suicide that he was looking up for Montana was a boy he, uh, had gone to school with before killing his parents and then he killed himself. So he knew about the situation before. Mm -hmm. So that's why he looked that one up specifically. His email also revealed that on February 1st, 2006, um, Kyle had asked when the next rave was on an internet message board that was run by a local raver. He stated that he had never been to one. Uh, How did he know about these raves? I feel like that's... How did he get into that community? Yeah, like such an underground or like a unique thing i lived in seattle for almost five years and maybe heard about a rave but i think it was like advertised everywhere so yeah i think so it looks like there was a lot of message boards that had like a ton about the community and like this one was at an art center Hmm. center. 
Um, and I think he just, I don't know how he got into it. Um, maybe, maybe it's honestly just not that uncommon and yeah. I just wasn't in the rave scene. <laughs> right. I don't think I was either at that time yeah. when I lived up in Washington, definitely being military, not a huge rave community yeah. there. Yeah. Um, they also found at the apartment more weapons and ammunition. As they continued to search the apartment, Kane, his brother, returned to the apartment. Um, at that time, he was taken into custody, but was ended up being released shortly after without any charges. So it doesn't seem like he was involved at all. A letter was found. Man, poor Kane. Like, I'm just thinking about that. Are they identical twins? They didn't say if they were identical or fraternal. Oh, what um, and again, it, like, they didn't put pictures in the yearbook. How much right. how, are you, how are you ever supposed to know that? <laughs> like, I man, what a crappy twin to have, though. Like, all like people have siblings that commit crimes all the time, but if you have an identical twin, let's say, or even if you're just like paternal and you just are, I don't know, similar looking, mm -hmm. that sucks, man. Yeah, that sucks. That's Even to just be related to somebody that's doing this. Right. Let alone being a twin. You're like, no, this is terrible. It's not a good look. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Like, that sucks. So a letter dated two days prior to the incident was found a month later in the garbage nearby the apartment. Uh, a neighbor called in a possible bomb uh, in the garbage, and they found out it was just clay and wires. And it was at that time that they found the letter. It said uh, the letter was titled, From Kyle to Kane. And among the items, oh, it was among the items in the bin. Um, there was a couple articles that said that this was, they thought it was a hoax. Some think that it's real. It's just odd that it was found, you know, a month later. Or Kane didn't bring anything up about it, didn't turn it in. Not necessarily that family would. It's just an odd incidence that somebody found a bomb or a possible bomb and reported it. And at this time, they found the letter. It's, it seems very strange. Very like hoaxy. I always wonder, too, like, who's finding stuff in garbage cans like I can tell you I have never once opened a garbage can and looked really at what my the contents are inside away. Yeah. like <laughs> even close enough if I saw like a bunch of clay with wires I probably would not investigate anymore because it would look disgusting inside of a garbage can so that's all I need to know yeah yeah well, in this letter, supposed letter, it detailed his disdain for the rave community and their open sexual freedom, saying that the rave community did things they simply couldn't live with. Um, again, initially they thought it was a hoax, but they did actually do writing samples uh, obtained from a job application in the area, and they matched it. Handwriting in the letter, writing. Um, the letter was also written on the back of an apartment notice that was dated on March 23rd. Mm. So it definitely went to their apartment at some point. Still, it's odd that it was found a month not, later. Not really the best city to move to if that's not like your vibe. Right. Right. Like, at least, like, you know, if you don't like my fire, don't come around. Like, but still just let it live. Yeah. Like, he was in the wrong city. Prior to the shooting, Kyle meticulously planned out what he was going to do. He packed magazines with ammunition before piling a rifle, shotgun, and a handgun into his black Dodge pickup. So on to the day of the rave, Kyle attended the Better Off Dead, uh, or Better Off Undead, zombie-themed rave party. The rave was originally set to take place at a different venue, but was moved days prior for security reasons. I don't think, I think it got bigger than they thought it was going to, so they needed to move it. Um, 
And they did say while there was a bar at the rave, it was shut down early because there weren't many legal aged Patreons that were indulging. Huh. Yeah. So it was a younger crowd that was there. And you'll see a couple of the victims that were at the house were young. It's such an unfortunate name of this like event too, Better Off Undead. Oh, zombie themed. I know. I know. I know. It's, just, it's just awful. Uh, several sources report that while there was ecstasy at the party, there wasn't many other drugs found. And again, likely due to the age of the attendees, many of whom were young teens, uh, there wasn't really a whole lot going on. At the rave, Kyle was kind and courteous to his fellow party goers. And as such, he was invited to an after party, even though nobody really knew him. Um, as the rave wound down, a group of about 30 people found themselves at this house that we talked about in the beginning on Republican Street. There they continued to have a good time until the effects of ecstasy wore off. So between 4 and 6 a.m., the house started to slowly empty out, um, while others kind of went into rooms to sleep it off. Kyle seemingly left with the others um, as it started to empty, but while everyone else um, who exited their ho- their, the house retired to their own homes, Kyle walked back to his truck that he had parked just a short short distance away. Um, It was just like around the corner, basically, uh, where it was still filled with all those weapons that he had been packing it with. And then Kyle removed a 12-gauge Winchester 1300 Defender, which is a pump-action shotgun, um, and extra ammunition that he hung on like several bandoliers that he hung around. Yikes. Yeah. That's good. He also removed a 40 caliber Ruger P944 handgun with two additional magazines and a holster on his right hip. And he also carried uh, magazines for an AR on his left hip, but he never pulled the AR out of the vehicle. I mean, how many people were left in the house at this point? Why does he need so much ammunition? Like, Yeah, I don't know why he decided. And you'll see, like, while he's going through, he dropped a lot and a lot was unspent, which Maybe is that's good. Why but... he needed? Yeah, <laughs> just... clumsy. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. that's so much. Yeah. Like, well, you'll see. He did a couple other things that were scare tactics, which is why he okay. had some extra. But there, it was just unnecessary. It's, I guess it feels cool, right? I guess. I yeah. Guess. Uh, as he walked towards the house, he sprayed, spray painted the word "now" several times uh, on the sidewalk as well on the front porch of the house before uh, re-entering. As he reached the steps, he shot Christopher Williamson and Melissa Moore, were both with the shotgun and then again with the handgun. Um, so he shot him in the chest with the shotgun. Oh, and no. as I fell, he pulled out his handgun um, and shot him both in the head. It seems like a little bit of like overkill, for lack of better words. Yeah, <laughs> better it's a little terms. excessive. Yeah. Uh, definitely chest wound probably would have done it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Jeremy Martin was also shot in the chest, which caused him to fall through the open front doorway. Um, and he died on the way to Harborview Medical Center hours after being shot. So I guess there is some survivability, but. Harborview is very good. Yeah. That's my old stomping grounds there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, an, it's a very good hospital. So yeah. They just do a lot of miraculous things there, but shotgun usually is the winner, I feel like. And um, there was, you know, a little bit of time between when this started and when EMTs arrived. So I'm sure it took a while to get to Harborview. Yeah. Uh, People in the house attempted to push the door shut. But unfortunately, Melissa Moore, one of those first two that were shot, her legs were blocking the doorway. So Kyle managed to push his way through the door, which caused Mark 
I don't know how to say his last name. I'm terrible with last names. It's, um, I think it's verbally. Uh, one of the people attempting to barricade the door tumbling backwards onto a couch. As Kyle entered, he then shot uh, Justin Schwartz in the torso and the head. Jason Travers was shot in the head, and Susan Thorne was also a shot to the head. They were all kind of in that front entryway trying to get the door shut. Oh, what an awful end to what was probably a really a really fun nice night. night. Yeah. yeah, like oh, it'd be so chaotic. It would be. Um, two others, Chris, Christiana Vincent and Jessica Ritland, hid behind a couch. And Kyle shot two more people and then aimed at Mark, who was the one that fell over onto the couch. But the gun dry fired as it was out of ammunition. And Kyle reloaded but didn't shoot Mark or the people that were hiding mm -hmm. behind the couch. He simply walked upstairs, stating, I've got enough ammunition for everyone. Oh, boy. Which is both frightening and strange. Because if you think about it, he's walking upstairs past these people. Right. Open door. So then they can just run. I mean, which is great for them, but what an odd, like, where is his thought process in this? Yeah. Maybe he just, in his brain, thought he already shot them. <laughs> he, he does this several times where he doesn't actually shoot people. Huh. It's strange for the fact that he did so much carnage. It's interesting trying to, like, justify or think about, like, what was going through this guy's head and be like, why would, why would he just leave them? But in reality, how could you ever get into this kid's head? Like. Yeah. What he's doing is impossible to even understand. Not like, something that an average person right. would do. So, yeah. like to question his technique, it's like, uh, yeah, we're never going to get there. There. Yeah. Um, so, as he went upstairs, um, he found the first bathroom that he went to locked. So, he shot through the door twice, but he missed both people inside. Gary Will and Alyssa Dunn were hiding in the bathroom on the far corner. Uh, or couple other sources said that they hid in the bathtub itself which probably be smart um, Kyle dropped his bandoliers upstairs and walked back downstairs to the first floor so again he's just dropping full like, like these two bandoliers full of ammunition and just throws them on the ground huh. they're not super heavy I don't understand the process but again we're not going to understand his process right. but you could definitely follow his trail based on where he was dropping ammunition yeah it's almost like he was giving himself like somewhere in the back of his mind he's like oh no he had a plan you'll see you'll oh see. boy yeah for that end anyway um so um he walked back down to the first floor where he found i think it's siobhan Howe hiding behind a couch in josiah's room across the hall um, and also a sleeping Aaron ketchup i think again he didn't fire on either of them so he mm -hmm. found two other people, left them alone. Um, he then walked down to the basement where multiple people were hiding, but he didn't fire his weapon at all in the basement. Uh, Anthony Bolton, Johnny Dixon, I think it's Sid Uden, and Oliver Bragg were um, all spared on this floor. The incident only lasted five minutes, but it was still wow. a lot of chaos for five minutes. Absolutely. I bet you the people who lived to talk, talk about this, it felt like a year. An eternity. Yeah, I can't even imagine seconds tick by. I can tell you. <laughs> I, yeah, be I know. I was just thinking, I was like, man, where would I hide in a situation like this? And then my brain instantly went to, oh, Leilani would know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> just follow her. And I would just hope that she could beat the shit out of them. Yeah. 
when he came into the room. Like, I feel like that's not true because I wouldn't be able to put myself in the mind of a psycho and what they're going to do. Like, again, showing this kid, right? Like, he did things that don't make any sense. I definitely, the people that were in the bathroom would have hid in the bathtub, hoping that it would give some, um, like, if they fired, that it would stop the bullet, depending right. on what size or caliber it is, though. You don't know if it's going to go through that. Yeah. I mean, this, like, scenario is there's so many people in this house too actually yeah, like, still left still left i guess that's a rave right yeah. that's the <laughs> type of rave people yeah so there was an officer that was actually um fairly nearby and officer leonard was a patrol officer that happened to be there um when he said that so some sources say that they, he heard the shots um and came to the house and some say that there were so many 911 calls and he was close enough in the vicinity that he was able to make it. Again, this only lasted five minutes. So right. within five minutes of it starting, which is a fairly good response time. Great. Um, immediately, he took off towards the scene, verifying the address through those numerous 911 calls that were coming in, just flooding, flooding the system. Um, reports say as many as 17 neighbors called, as well as people within the house itself were calling. As he arrived, he found the injured but alive Jeremy. Um, on the front, as well as Kyle coming down the steps, the officer said that he reports that he didn't even have time to give Kyle a verbal command to drop his gun before he drew it up to his mouth um, and fired. Oh, so he wasn't. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely. I don't think that you would have such an immediate re reaction without planning to go out this way. 100%. He knew the second he saw a police officer, he was going to take his own yeah. life. Yeah. So I feel like otherwise there would have been either a shootout or he would have ran back inside or it something. It would have been a bit of hesitation. Yeah. The like, officer didn't even have time to say anything. Yeah. He was just, that's probably why he quit shooting. He was waiting for the police to show up. That's a fair thought. I never thought about that. Yeah. Because it does seem weird because, I mean, after the initial shooting, he just. He just walked around. Yeah. He was just waiting for police to show up. So then it looked heroic in a sense for him to just take his own life. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple reports um, from some of the people in there that he would, um, he did point the gun at them, but he would um, basically rack the shotgun, which just ejects right, just... a live round, uh, which that sound itself would be intimidating. Oh, I'm sure, terrifying. especially if you don't realize um, weaponry. And so you don't know that he's right. ejecting something. And so yeah. he, he might've, and I was like, you can only do that so many times before now you're out of ammunition completely, but he did it. Even so, then, I think, like you still can like pop the gun. Is that what you, I guess you'd call it? You can still make that same. Oh yeah. When like, it's empty. Yeah. yeah. Sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sound that all scare teenagers. Oh crap. Like, yeah. So you can rack the shotgun. I mean, right. as many times as you right. want, but he could have kept it blank and then just continued to make that. And that mm -hmm. would have been enough fear within 18 Definitely. year olds or however old these kids are like. And it's a very neat sound. I mean, you know that gun sounds. So oh, yeah. Funny. I can't imagine in a situation like that, knowing that people have been shot and then hearing that sound. Oh. Because in my head, it would have been like, oh, man. Like, yeah. now he's ready. Yep. Like, we're screwed. Yeah. I can't. Oh. Mm -mm. Um, so after firing, he ended the rampage killing spree that had rocked Seattle. Before anyone um, comes at me about this shotgun, this is what I figured to be the most prevalent source. Um, there are reports that one of the guns he had had a pistol grip. Um, so shotguns aren't very easy to fire on yourself. Um, but he had a pistol grip at the front, which would basically allow him to aim it forward and then just be able to reach mm -hmm. the trigger. Because I know a lot of shotguns, um, I mean, the length of them alone 
right. most of the time it would be too much for most people. Um, there are some shorter ones, but not likely with this. Yeah. There's a, a lot of discussion about that in the Alex Murdoch case, if anyone's familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How long you can it could have been in order to turn it on yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. But the fact that this had a pistol grip on it, I mean, you definitely and it's definitely a possibility. So obviously that's what happened. He was able to hold it with one hand and just reach the trigger with the other. Um, and then, so police searched Kyle's truck. They revealed an additional uh, 223 caliber Bushmaster. Um, it's a, it's another rifle, um, another handgun that w- it went unnamed. Um, several more boxes of ammunition, a baseball bat, and a machete, as well as two fuel cans of gasoline. Wow. Which sounds like he had a much larger hand. It sounds like it, but also how are you going to carry all that's excessive amount oh, yeah, of things? Yeah. Like you, you can't. I feel like that's a video game. Like you see that on a video game where characters are carrying all this, but in real life, it's too bulky. It's you not. It's going it to get in the way of itself. Utility pack, Leilani. <laughs> yeah, my bad. <laughs> like, press X and it pops right out. That's what it seems. That's what it sounds like when you're reading all the amount of things that he had in there. Like where where are you storing this all? Yeah, and he, the amount of ammunition for each one is different. So where are you storing that? Where are you storing that? Or like the amount of time you think that you have. With all of yes. this, like even if he didn't like, plan on making trips to his pickup to like get the next round of whatever like yeah. horrible he was gonna unleash, yeah. like you still would then be counting on the fact that no neighbor is gonna call the police and you have twenty minutes to yeah. My only thought is maybe because you know when they had first started um, the after party, there was what like thirty some people. But then they started to dwindle. So maybe as he's leaving, he's like, oh, I don't actually need all of this would be maybe the only logical thing I could think of. Or he did it backwards. I mean, not that I want to get into like, how would I do it? Yeah. 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 It's not the best way to think uh, with your brain these days, but he could have put the gasoline down first. And then as he was like walking out of the place, lit it up, you know? Yeah. That maybe would have been the smarter way to go about it. But Or if he was going to run the fuel would have been for his truck but again his yes, immediate yeah. re- reaction See, was to kill himself that. yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. Like, that's oh. what i thought when yeah. i heard about the fuel i was See. like oh he was gonna run but then immediately upon seeing the first cop there wasn't a shootout he didn't even aim it at the officer yeah so I'm like oh maybe not and that goes back to you know your military training because i didn't even think about the fact that if you're gonna run you're gonna need more gasoline <laughs> i'm just like oh no burn the house down right <laughs> But who's to say? I mean, it could have been for anything. Oh, man. Uh, following this tragedy, the Church Council of Greater Seattle held an interfaith prayer service at the site of the murder, and more than 500 people attended the service. It was held on March 28th. Weeks following, of course, local debates about gun control, mental health, and the safety of social events were definitely reignited in the area, um, leading to increased security in the Seattle area at that time. Local ravers worried that this would lead to a destruction of their type of gathering, deeming it unsafe. Many reports stated that a large number of ravers felt that it was an additional punishment, um, including or in the aftermath of the shooting. Maybe that's why I haven't heard of the raves in Seattle. Uh, maybe, yeah. Maybe it really did sort of kill the scene. Yeah. Could have been like a hopping thing before I got there. Well, yeah, and I also think graves were a lot bigger 
um, kind of in the early 2000s than they are now. I know there's still raves. I've seen them. Right. You know, we've had friends that have gone. Yeah. But they just don't feel like they're as big in Seattle or even here in this area, which are both areas that would definitely happen. Oh, for sure. I And I, I have been to like legitimate raves in New York, that are like unknown locations. You had to know the person who knew the person and know the code to get into the warehouse that mm-hmm. they were doing a rave at. But it was like, that felt a lot different. It wasn't, I guess I was maybe just the guest. So I wasn't part of the community, but mm-hmm. it, I feel like you could continue that in a big city like Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that going. After this, uh, Seattle police set together a panel to review the event. Uh, a lot of my intervention, inner, goodness, I can talk. Yeah. a lot of my information uh, came from this panel review that they, there was like this whole paper that came out about it. Um, as the killer committed suicide, many unanswered questions were left behind, the least of which is to say why he felt that this murder was necessary. I was just gonna say like I feel this way with every like shooting that happens Mm. and the killer shoots himself like what a pussy yeah like come on dude how fucking dare you like how dare you and like what like what's the point like at least stay alive and bask in the glory of what you think you've done like what are you doing like you're such a loser man I've never like I think that's the highest definition of loser yeah I can agree with um, so the panel, the paper that they wrote, um, so they submitted it on July 17, 2006. It was over 30 pages long that they wrote oh, about this whole thing. Um, and in the panel, it had several kind of goals. Uh, they wanted to attempt to answer the questions that were left hanging by the suicide, such as why did Kyle commit the act itself? Uh, was he mentally impaired? And could the rampage have been anticipated and prevented? Uh, other questions were, why did he, uh, why did Huff commit the crime where he did, given no apparent prior relationship with the victims? Uh, and was the episode totally random in scope, or did Huff somehow target the victims? Did his brother know anything? I don't know. It doesn't say. And he, I mean, they did initially take him in, but it sounds like either he didn't give anything up or... They didn't suspect that he was part of this. That's so scary. Mm-hmm. Like to think you live with your twin and you don't have like an indication that he's about to literally lose his like brain. Yeah. Again, can't even imagine. Yeah. Can't even imagine. Um, so the paper continued stating for the healing process to proceed, it is important to make some sense of the seemingly senseless carnage to derive answers or at least plausible theories about these and other questions surrounding motive, causation, prevention, and response, end quote. I think it's that's true. It's hard to heal from something that really isn't understood. Um, the group of people consisting of numerous professors attempted to make sense of an event that was senseless. Yeah, you, you, you can't. Yeah, we talked about that before. Yeah. You really can't put yourself in their head. <laughs> that's so good. Um, they did surmise a few things. First, that the Republican Street followed suit with many um, rave after parties at the time. Nothing stuck out as significant. That while Kyle was at the rave and the after party, he was not overtly mean or rude, but rather stuck to the edges of the parties, making light conversation, but never completely engaging. Um, he only did enough so that he would be 
either likely forgotten um, if he hadn't been so violent. The actions taken by Kyle were deliberate and methodical at points. Going back to the beginning of the shootings, when Kyle attacked his first two victims, he first pumped the shotgun. Um, as it had um, already been loaded, they found an ejected loaded shotgun shell, or shell as most others call it. Um, this action carries with it specific sound, like we talked about earlier, that might um, have been made to ensure the victims knew that it was happening and turn around to face him. Um, after the shooting them with the shotgun, he then had to unholster his handgun, shoot them again, and then reholster the handgun before moving forward. So all of this takes time. Yeah. And he was there for only like five, five minutes. minutes. So Yeah. Um, after reloading, he moved through the house, taunting some. Again, I brought this up a little bit earlier, but he would rack the shotgun and eject loaded shot shells, but not firing. Um, the paper surmises that this could have been done due to disorganization or anxiety on his part. Hmm. I mean, I would definitely go for disorganization. It's not like he had cased the place. He didn't know the area. It was just right. he had been invited to a house he'd never been before. I mean, it's probably both. Mm -hmm. Right, like he seems like he's probably a pretty anxious person yeah. as well. Like yeah. this is how he's handling his stress load. Then mm -hmm. he wasn't very good at it. The aftermath of the killing spree was equally chaotic. When people within the house were found, they had to be escorted out of the house, and they were brought past the people that had already been. Oh no! But you want to get them out right away. I mean, I can't imagine both sides before going home. They had to be transported to the police station for questioning so they could give their statements, which I can't imagine getting statements from all these people who had to be in shock about what's happening. Yeah, it would be, I feel like you'd have to get like two statements Yeah, from people yeah. like this. Because the first statement would, you don't, who knows what you're going to get out of that. Yeah, but sometimes um, as people process, they definitely probably forget some of the information as stuff. You know, one of our right. coping mechanisms that we forget tragic things. So I get both sides, but I can't imagine totally trying to answer those questions. And after this, you start to fill it in too. Yeah. As more time goes on mm -hmm. with talking between your friends, you start putting pieces together that maybe actually didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely understand the need for it. But man, that would be, yeah. What a long night, especially not that I have any experience with it, but like, Coming down off of ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why people were leaving, right? That's why things right. are winding down. It was wearing off. They were all going to bed. Now you get to go sit in a police station and talk about this horrific event. Wow. I bet you they never did ecstasy again, those kids. Probably not. Not to mention, so some of these families are now finding out about this incident, but aren't getting anything from police at this point because oh, it's a whole open thing that they're dealing with at the time. Um, more than one family found out about their child's death from news coverage rather than oh, local nice. police. Mm -hmm. Local oh. agencies um, seem just as shrewd. They, so I can't, some of these things are just ridiculous. So some of the families were required to pay a $20 fee in order to obtain toxicology and autopsy reports from Kings County Medical Examiner's Office after this no. happened. Yeah. So now they're having to pay to find out what happened. Oh man, that's like, I feel like that's right up Seattle Valley, man. Yeah. It's such a. Such a kick in the pants. Like. It's a rough place. Yeah. Like, it's just a city that wasn't intending to be a city, I think. Mm -hmm. And they just don't know how to do it right. <laughs> like, like, I moved to Seattle from New York. And when I got to Seattle, I was like, this place sucks, mm -hmm. man. 
<laughs> Do you know how many other nurses I worked with that said they left Seattle because they got iced out? Oh, like nobody would talk to me. It's the Seattle freeze. I can't. You meet someone and then like, let's hang out. You get their phone number and you text them and they just don't even respond ever. You're like, okay, this is stupid. Yeah. A couple of them have said that they wouldn't even like, they'd be walking at work and say hi to people in the hall and just ignored. Oh, like, it's, it's like, the, I don't what? know what it is. Maybe it's the dark, gloomy weather and you just are like, you know what? I've got enough people in my life. I don't need to go outside any more than I already do. <laughs> like. But man, it's rough. But that King County, it is. Yeah, that's just. I can't imagine trying to get information. You learn it on the news, and so you're like, "All right, well, I'm going to go to the medical examiner. We're going to find out exactly what happened." I just, because me, I guess on my end, I'd be like, "I just want to know they didn't suffer." And you go to get the examination results, and they're like, "Mm, "Sorry, I'm going to need twenty bucks for that." I would burn the place down. I would need that gasoline, (laughs) Kyle. Like, I. How probably you? didn't understand it before having my daughter but now it's like if you stand in the way of me knowing anything about my child and what their safety yeah. or what their life was like oh I will burn <laughs> you down like yeah the wrath of Sam yes <laughs> I wouldn't want to be on the other <laughs> the paper also touches on um Kyle's computer had many deleted files and hidden Trojan horses in it, making it difficult for them to find information um, that he had been searching about. Um, while some of the information on skinheads would fa- was found, it was labeled in files that were called skins um, and had been corrupted and likely contained more information on skinheads, their groups, and their ideologies. Mm. So he definitely made it so that if somebody did look at his computer, which again, he's that's premeditation. He's thinking about Okay, if they look and they look at this, like, here's a Trojan horse, it's going to mess everything up and you're not going to get the information you need. Yeah, that's, like, definitely premeditation because... It's a lot of planning. It's not like you had friends that were going to come over and ask, hey, can I use your laptop? And then find this stuff. Like, yeah. he wasn't hiding it from his buddies that were coming over because he didn't have any. Like, yeah. he knew that the police were going to get their hands on that. Yeah. Like, the paper also touches upon more of the whys this included his likely frustration and how he found his own life to be highlighting again that he was a poor student he graduated at near bottom of his class with no clear friend groups which we talked about earlier Um, and while he had been working for a time as he moved to seattle this work became more sporadic and unemployment became more frequent his move to seattle ended up isolating him even more than when he was in his own hometown but even so this was a gradual change in him and not a sudden shift in mentality. So there is little, there was no warning sign. The planning of it makes it more plausible that he had known this intention, they think, months. Um, the paper makes some really great points. Um, what kind of explaining the whole situation from Kyle to the Ravers about the kind of culture the two worlds were in. Still near the end, there were parts of the paper that make it sound a little bit judgmental towards the victims and uh, kind of that rave lifestyle making it less impartial so it's a good paper but you can definitely see that there's some bias coming out of especially the end of it towards the rapers but like the judgment being that they shouldn't have been there at that time of night or like what without victim shaming they were victim shaming like this is kind of a dangerous culture um mm-hmm. you had to know that there was some risks involved you know, all right well there's a risk every time i get in my car that somebody's exactly. gonna hit me but i'm still gonna drive exactly like so, you're still going to drive and you're not going to expect yeah. someone to take a shotgun and shoot you while you're driving. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like it's 
There's, sure, there's risks involved and they're calculated and you might end up hitting them sometimes. And then at that point, you can maybe say, well, you knew that you potentially could get roofied when you're at a rate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. You don't know that you're going to get shot with a shotgun yeah. and you're at a rate. Like, <laughs> exactly. that, to me, that's wild. Yeah. Again, sort of feels right up Seattle's alley. <laughs> yeah, it is good paper, but I would definitely suggest if you read it through, kind of pay attention to those bias that you can feel towards it. And in the beginning, it didn't feel like it, but it just felt like towards the end that they were like, well, you know. Right. They snuck oh, it in. Really? Yes. Or maybe. The, like, let's just focus on. They switched writers halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now let's shed a little more light on those whose lives were short. I feel like it's important to bring their names kind of into this to let them not be forgotten in the aftermath of sorting out this motive. So Christopher Williamson was a 21-year-old disc jockey who had been heavy into the rave scene for a while. This led him to significant drug history um, prior to this, but his mother said that he was trying to remove himself from the life, and this was going to be his last event that he attended. That's what he told his mom. I mean, well, that's devastating, but even that, like 21, and who cares if he has a drug history? He's 21, yeah. you know, like he's that, that is his life he's surrounded himself with, but he's not like a 40 year old disc jockey who's like significantly entrenched in drug, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, drug issues. Like he's 21. Yeah. Like, whole life ahead of him. He, yeah. That's... Yeah. His spinning name was Deacon 808. Oh, as he cool. was a deacon in his church, I which I thought was amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There he did missionary work in the summer with uh, children of migrant workers. Oh no. I know. Okay. I like, know. Uh, sounds like a great kid. Yeah, it really does. Sounds like a really cool person that you'd probably have a lot All to talk about do. with. All <laughs> these people do. Yeah. So Jason Travers was 32 years old at the time, um, and a friend and family called him a gentleman and a good listener. Travis worked at Madison Market, a food cooperative, as a clerk. His parents reported him to be a vegan and a conscientious objector, um, explaining that he had a gentle way of life. Mm -hmm. I know. He probably took care of all those kids, right? Yeah. Like, uh Jerry Martin was 26 years old. He was a musician and a wine salesman. His stepmother stated that he had, uh, was forthright and not a meddler. Oh. I just love some of these descriptions coming from family. It is like such a unique description yeah. of someone. I I don't think I've ever heard of anybody like, oh, he's so forthright. I'm like what? Yeah. And then not a meddler. Yeah. It definitely makes you feel like there's some meddlers in that family. <laughs> He's the quiet sibling. Yeah, like, yeah, the one that doesn't get it. Like he doesn't put his nose anywhere where it needs to be. Like. Uh, Justin Schwartz was 23 years old. His family reports um, that he had been wandering slightly in the years prior, and he had found the rave scene, and that was really his community. He loved to just dance and be part of something, which that is a whole community. It is. Like, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean that's what religion is you know like it's a mm -hmm. group of people who just support each other and that's what that rave scene was for a lot of people but he uh yes yes <laughs> melissa moore uh was 14 years old 14 14 Ooh, she yes. was reported as loving generous but tough um she was from out of the city and just started coming to raves four months prior with older friends oh no yeah 14, 14. Come on. That's like. And she was one of the ones that he 
did extra damage here. He was one of the ones that shot in the chest and then the head. Like fourteen years old. It's how do you do? How do you even? Because he's a he's a, a kid. bully. He's a like the you know Kyle's a loser as a, like so he's gonna choose the easy looking targets and he was fourteen. Oh, sweet thing, yes. And then we have a fifteen year old Susan Thorne was fifteen. Uh, her mother said that Gandhi was her role model. She was a pacifist who loved studying about the ecosystem, animals, and insects. Oh, man. I can't even imagine being the parents. No. Those no. kids. These like, kids. How devastating to wake up and then have to pay to find out what happened, what happened to, to them. them. Like, yeah. oh, my God. Or hearing on the news. Yeah. Like, nobody's even come told you. You click on the news and just, there it is. Like, junior high and high school, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Not even who knows what they were. Maybe Susan was a pacifist, but who knows? She might have what been she could have been like president. Yeah. Like who knows? But um the two surviving victims that were injured were kept from the press. I'm guessing that they're underage. So yeah. Uh, we don't know who they were. Um unfortunately that's all I could really find on the victims, which is kind of sad. Um I would have loved to talk about more about. Them. But that wraps up Kyle, Aaron Huff. Uh, and his massacre at Hill, Seattle. Oh, boy. I actually, like, don't remember that story at all. It was early 2000s. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it at all when I lived up in Washington. Yeah, like, Seattle breeds a certain type of people, mm-hmm. for sure. And, like, there's a certain environment there that you would sort of expect maybe stuff like this to happen more. That's probably not the right thing to say, but I just like Capitol Hill is such a like vibrant community uh-huh. that's full of like life and energy and to think that that happened there is just shocking to me yeah. like knowing what it is now um yeah it's just sad so sad it's a lot all right well to all those listening remember to be careful out there it's a dangerous world we live in